along with the lovely melody. Hey folks, welcome to this week's podcast. It is Michael Shelley here with Carl Giamarisi, my guest today from the Buckinghams. You know, I was playing some Buckinghams records a couple weeks ago, and I I thought, like, what is the story with this band? I sort of only knew them from their big hit, Kind of a Drag, and the deeper I got into them, the more I was surprised by them. There's some crazy kind of psychedelic stuff towards the end of their period, yet their beginning is mostly these very straightforward garage band covers. But then there's kind of like crossover between the association with the vocal sound and that big horn sound is kind of very 70s sounding, but in the 60s. So interesting band. The more I got into them, the more I was interested. And I found Carl G. Marisi. We'll talk to him today and get the story behind the band. I want to remind you a bunch of things coming up. Dorothy Carvello will be uh, in the next podcast. She has written this book all about trying to be the first woman at uh, Atlantic Records, the first female A&R executive, and she just had a terrible time. Uh, it's a very interesting book. She's next week. Uh, Starry Skies will be here, a band from Glasgow, November 17th. Ron Hicklin, King of the Background Singers, Jingle Singers, uh, amazing body of work. Cannot wait to talk to him. Just tracked him down in Hawaii. And Dennis Dyken coming up. He'll be here to talk about the future and the past of the smithereens. You can check the dates over at WFMU.org slash Michael. Of course, all the archives are there and the list of upcoming guests, too. Also, quick thank you to anyone who pledged during our fall fundraiser who is a podcast listener. It is very much appreciated. All right, Carl G. Marisi, right here. Enjoy. is Hey Baby, They're Playing Our Song from the Buckinghams, and Carl G. Marisi joins us on the telephone. I, that is such a a big, wonderful 1960s sound. I'm going to assume you never get sick of hearing yourself on the radio. Well, exactly. First of all, Michael, thanks for having me on your show. And uh, yeah, Hey Baby is a favorite, and uh, it's great to hear it. You know, you never get tired of that. I mean, it's it's amazing. I remember the first time I heard our songs on the radio, you know, going back to the 60s, uh, middle and late 60s, and it was so exciting. And, uh, you know, I'll be tooling around, and one of our songs will come on the radio, and I, I still get excited. It's still a great feeling. Never get tired of hearing our songs. So Your van- band is very closely associated with Chicago. Is that where you're from? Yes, yeah. The band started, the Buckingham started in Chicago in 1965. But is that where you grew up? Yeah, I grew up on what is known as the north side of the city. Some of us are from, well, most of us were all from the north part of the city. And uh, we had one member uh, that was a south sider, but uh, uh, we don't hold it against him. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but uh, yeah, we grew up playing, you know, at the time in 65, 66, there were, you know, 
dances and teen hops all over the city. And we were always busy. Even when I was in high school, I was playing, you know. And uh, so we, we uh, you know, cut our teeth on playing uh, all these different dances. And, you know, our first big break came uh, on a TV show. We, we won an audition uh, on a show called All Time Hits on WGN television. And we auditioned along with a lot of other bands, won the audition. And it was a 13-week show and uh, a variety show. And being that it was uh, a superstation, it actually played all around the country in different markets, you know, it was syndicated. So that was, that was our first real break. And that was in September of 65. So before then, were you guys, were you still in high school at that point? And were you guys just kind of a garage band playing, you know, local dances and stuff? Yeah, we were playing local dances. Uh, and I was still in high school. I was the youngest member of the Buckingham. So, um, I was still, um, in 65, I was a junior in high school and, uh, uh, so it was pretty incredible to have that kind of success and, and be um, still in school. And, and uh, my senior year was crazy because we were pl- really starting to play and we were starting to get airplay on, on uh, various records we made that were, you know, Midwest, just local hits and Midwest hits for us. You know, we had a couple great radio stations, WLS and WCFL back in, in the day, and they were very supportive of uh, local bands. They would, they would put your, your songs on rotation, and you'd get a lot of airplay, and, and especially WLS at night, you could hear it across the country, and so we were getting airplay, and you know, that was uh, thrilling. So yeah, I was still in school, and the guys would pick me up, say, on a, on a Friday after school, and we would all pile in a van and drive as far away as uh, somewhere in South Dakota <laughs> and play a gig, you know, over the weekend. And then they drive me back and I try to make it in time to get back in school on, on Monday morning. So it, it was uh, pretty hectic at that time, you know. Yeah. I was uh, struggling to just get through school and, and keep up with the band because everybody else had already graduated and was out of school, out of high school. And so it made it a little easier for them. So, yeah. Was it the Beatles that got the band started? I mean, so many bands at that time, if it wasn't for the Beatles, they literally would not exist. Was that the case with the Buckinghams? Yeah, well, you know, us, me, along with everybody, uh, all wanted to be a fifth Beatle, you know, and uh, the Beatles were a major, major influence, you know. I mean, I was, uh, I, I started playing a guitar when I was 13, and, you know, I was listening to Elvis records, and I was listening to instrumental groups like The Ventures, and, uh, you know, songs like Pipeline and lear- learning these songs. And, and, uh, and I also, you know, really enjoyed, uh, the Roy Orbison and, and the Everly brothers, you know, and, and, and I thought it was pretty cool, but I didn't think I was going to make a career out of the music business until the Beatles came along in 64. And, uh, uh, they just really knocked me out and everybody. And, and, uh, it was at that point that I says, man, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I want to be in the music business. I want to have a band. I want to, you know, do what they're doing. And, strive for that so yeah they were they were the for me anyway they they were the the major influence uh and we were listening to everything at the time i mean we had you know the buckinghams were a cover band at the time and we were covering uh everything from you know r&b to pop you know we were playing james brown and wilson pickett and sam and dave and and then a lot of groups like the beach boys and the you know whatever pop we we just cover whatever records were on on the radio at the time, you know, and that was part of our show. 
Yeah, the 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 breadth of material is is quite startling. I mean, that one band would play all that, but I guess when you're a cover band, you just have a gig and you'd have to play many sets, so you'd need a lot, a lot of songs. Is that kind of how you develop such a diverse set list? Yeah, because you would have to play, you know, at least a couple sets, but sometimes more than that. So you know, and you didn't want to have to repeat. So yeah, you'd learn a lot of songs, and and it was a great experience and a great thing to do because you learned a lot of different styles and you learned uh, you really cut your teeth on different uh, because of the different records you know and, and what they were doing and you you would constantly be discovering something new you know and it helped a lot and our, our first album uh, that we finally had the opportunity when we landed a record deal on, on a chicago-based label the usa records well we did the kind of a drag album and there were there were a few original tunes on there, but uh, there were a lot of cover tunes, you know. And our, our first recordings were cover tunes, you know, our first singles. I, I heard that the you mentioned the all time hits uh, television show. I mentioned that uh, I think you guys had were called the Pulsations, and that the producers of the show said, "Hey, uh, why don't you guys change your name to something that's more British?" And that a security guard who worked at the studio suggested the Buckinghams. Is that a true story? Uh, yeah, it is. You know, a lot of people thought, you know, we have a, a famous fountain called Buckingham Fountain in, in Chicago, down in Grant Park by the lake. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful in the summertime. They, they have it on and it's all lit up. And, and uh, but that isn't, you know, we got our name. We Like I said, we landed that TV show and they didn't like the pulsations. They didn't like our name and they wanted to capitalize on the British invasion starting to happen, you know, like crazy and so uh we became friends with uh a guy who worked at the tv station he was a security guard his name was john opager and uh john came up with a couple names and one of them was the buckinghams and we said well well that sounds british they wanted a british name and we couldn't believe nobody was using it and you know we searched to see if there was someone else and there wasn't so we started doing the, the tv show as as the buckinghams that's and, so funny uh, you know, and it was, you know, three weeks and, you know, we were the token rock band on the TV show. We, we would choose about three songs that were on the top of the charts that week and we would perform those on the show, you know, so I don't think we were that good, but we, <laughs> <laughs> many, many years later, the producer of the show, I think his name was Sheldon Cooper. Somebody had asked him, I saw it in an article. He says, why did you choose those guys for the TV show when all these bands and he says, well, he says, they were the least worst. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny you, you say that because I was going to, you know, the, the story goes, you're in high school, you're in this cover band who you describe as, as being the least worst, and then you get on a TV show and you get signed to USA Records. You make it, it makes it sound so easy. Uh, were there a million other bands? Was there a lot of other competition? Was everybody? Oh, yeah. Yeah. There, there were a lot of bands, and that's kind of a joke. I mean, I thought we were pretty good, actually, for what was going on at the time, and it was a really strong vocal group, and, and uh, you know, we were, you know, we weren't the musicians yet that we became like we are today, but, uh, uh, you know, we, we were holding our own. Well, let me ask you this. You mentioned you were a really strong vocal group. Whose idea was it to... to get harmonies so strong because definitely the Buckinghams are known for these kind of, you know, wall of, of harmonies. Was that something that just came natural to you guys? I mean, that's kind of a sophisticated. 
Right. Uh, you know, it came, it, it came natural and also what we were listening to at the time. I mean, obviously Beatle records, we were getting the harmonies from there and, you know, we had a lot of favorite groups like, uh, another one was the Hollies and the zombies. And, you know, we were listening to the British groups and, and, uh, and the beach boys had great harmonies. And, and, uh, so we were picking up on all that stuff too, and all that material. And, uh, and, and that helped us, um, you know, we would discover things. We would try different things in the studio, and um, and USA, you know, USA Records. I mean, the, the TV show we did on All Time Hits. That that's what got us the uh, record deal with the Chicago label USA. You know, we we started recording. The first album we did was, like I said, a lot of cover material. You know, our first single was uh, a cover of a James Brown song uh, called "I'll Go Crazy." And uh, that was our first song I heard played on the radio. And, of course, we covered the, the Beatles song, I Call Your Name. And that was a single also, you know. So, and, and we were, you know, starting to build a following. You know, we had a really strong following around Chicago. But the competition was great around, you know, there were a lot of great bands. Uh, you know, the Eyes of March, the Crying Shames, the New Colony Six, the Mods. You know, these bands were, and, and we, we, it was a friendly competition. We were all kind of pushing each other. You'd hear one band play somewhere one night and, and you'd hear what they were doing. And you said, well, we got to do something better than that. You know, and we, you know, so you were pushing each other and, um, and, you know, recently we did a, 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 a PBS special, uh, called the cornerstones of rock with all the Chicago bands and, uh, and, you know, most of these bands just had Midwest hits, but they were big around Chicago the bands I mentioned and we closed the show and the, 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 uh, the PBS special did so well. Uh, we turned it into a live show and we, we've played with at cornerstones. We've played maybe about 12 shows already, uh, mostly around Chicago and the Midwest, but, uh, it's done very well. So you mentioned the, you were basically a cover band in the beginning. And like you said, James Brown and the Beatles and the zombies and, uh, the Hollies, a, a bunch of great songs you guys picked, but then you started to add songs, new songs. And who, who got those songs? Like kind of a drag came from this guy, Jim Holvey. I, I don't know who he was. Who was the first to hear those songs? Who brought them to the Buckinghams? Well, as a group, collectively as a group, you know, we talked about it. Everything was decided as a group when we were trying to do things at the time. And uh, we realized that we were never going to break out and have major success unless we found that, that song, the song, you know, the hit. And we needed original material. And none of us were songwriters uh, at the time, so we, we weren't coming up with anything. So we had a manager, uh, his name was Carl Bonafetti, and uh, we said, hey, Carl, you got to find us, you know, we, we need a, a great song. So he knew this guy who played in a band, uh, uh, well, not just around Chicago, they were kind of a Vegas group uh, called The Mob. They were a big horn band, and the guitar player in the, in the group, uh, his nickname was Jimmy Soul, and his name was Jim Holvey. And his partner Gary Beisbeer, him and him and uh, Jim and, and Gary uh, were songwriters writing. So uh, this our manager went to his house one day. So you know, because Jim Holvey said, "I got a song I can give you guys." You know, so so our manager goes over there with a reel, the reel tape player. And, and a microphone and uh, Jim had just gotten up that morning and he's, he picked up his guitar and he's strumming on a, an electric guitar that's not even plugged in. 
and he's singing the song to him while Carl is recording it, you know, kind of a drag, you know, and, and it wasn't uh, anything like we recorded. He kind of sang it slow and whatever. So our manager brought it back to us and um, we kind of recognized there was something special about the song, you know, it just, uh, you know, it just, it was a cool title. And so we, we got together and at the time we used to rehearse in, in, in our parents' basements, you know, that's what we do. We would rehearse at one parent's basement until they got sick of us and threw us out. Now we go to the next parents, you know, <laughs> and so forth. So anyway, we were, we were in my house and rehearsing it and came up with an arrangement and our keyboard player came up with that intro, you know, that da 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 you know, that whole yeah. grand royal entrance to the song. I, I still remember working on it and my mother coming down and saying, you know, that song has got something, you know, it sounds really cool. Like, you know, I think it's a hit. So anyway, we finally went in the studio with it. And uh, at the time, our producer, uh, this guy, Dan Belloc, was insisting on putting, we were in a horn band. But he was putting horns on all our recordings, you know, on the earlier recordings, the cover tunes we were using horns. He was a big band leader, too. And we'd, we'd use his orchestra, his band, the horn guys in his band. And so uh, that intro, uh, the arranger, uh, his, his name was Frank Tuzinski, a trombone player. He came up with an arrangement to, to go along with that intro, you know, and, and it just made it that much bigger. And uh, so we added the horns, recorded it, and thought it sounded great. And it took USA a couple months to, or, or longer to put it out there. I don't know why they waited so long. We thought it was great. And and then when they finally released it, I mean, it really took off. I mean, I, we were just stunned by the success of it, you know, by... As as you know, probably by I think it was February of sixty seven, it was a number one record for us. You know? Yeah, two weeks at number one. And I was curious, I looked at the billboard charts for that week and the top ten, your song's number one, Monkeys I'm a Believer, Stones, Ruby Tuesday, Georgie Girl from the Seekers, The Blues Magoos, uh We Ain't Got Nothing Yet, Supremes, Love Is Here Now You're Gone, Keith ninety eight point six, Aaron Neville, Tell It Like It Is, The Beat Goes On, Sunny and Sharon, Give Me Some Love and Spencer Davis Group. That is an amazing nine other songs to be on top of. And and it really yeah. shows just the the output of that time, you know, nineteen sixty seven and you know, sort sort of spurred on by the Beatles. But the competition and the, the quality of the music is amazing. It's really, really an amazing accomplishment to have a number one at that time when the quality of music was so high. So was your mind blown? I mean, you were still a young, oh, young, yeah. young man. Well, well, when it knocked, you know, it actually knocked uh, the monkeys, I'm a believer, off the number one spot, you know and took over at number one, which I used to razz uh, Davy Jones, who was a good friend, <laughs> and, uh, and Mickey Dolans. I still see him, you know. Uh, we've, we've done shows with Mickey and uh, reminded them that we knocked him off the charts, you know, off the number one spot anyway. Yeah, it was pretty incredible. I mean, we, we were just blown away. I mean, it, it's just everything started happening so fast for us, you know. You know, that changed everything. I mean, to have a national, especially number one, hit uh you know as you probably know we were voted in 1967 the most listened to band in america in that year so it it was pretty incredible how things uh, it was overwhelming you know we were young guys but you know it it, it what makes it easier is when you're a group of five guys and and you know you kind of 
you have each other, you know, so that, that helped a lot, you know, with all that traveling. Cause we played close to 300 dates, uh, in 67. We yeah, not, not only that, but you guys are Ed Sullivan show, Smothers Brothers, Jerry Lewis show, Joey Bishop show, American Bandstand. Uh, you know, it's a lot of work. Uh, not every group gets along real well. Did Were you guys a tight unit? Yeah, we, we did get along. We, 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 there was never any animosity or any fighting or infighting. And we, we used to, like I said, we were a, a real democracy, you know, as far as uh, how we made decisions. And, uh, uh, you know, at the time, our keyboard player, Marty Greb, was probably the strongest uh, musically. So uh, maybe we leaned on him a little bit more. One of the things, you know, about this crazy busy time is I, I'm looking at your discography and basically three albums in 1967, another one in 68, uh, plus you say 300 gigs a year, TV shows and stuff. Uh, not all young men w would have the maturity to to deal with this situation. You personally, were you were you able to deal with all this? Um, yeah, I, I mean, um, you know, th things were going so quickly and you didn't even have time to really think about it. I reflected on it many years later, but, uh, it, it was, um, I think everyone in the group was pretty mature for their age. And, uh, and, you know, we had a lot of support from, you know, parents and friends and, uh, uh, you know, I remember some some of our friends would say, "Oh, you know, that changed you guys." We, you know, changed. But you know, in reality, in reality, they changed. You know, they 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 started treating us differently. You know, and it wasn't really us; it was it was them. But um, we we I think we did a really good job of of uh, dealing with the success. You know, and and it was. Uh, you know, overwhelming. Those were the, the Beatle days that a lot of times on the road, you know, it, it was like um, uh, a hard day's night. I mean, seriously, I remember being in New York City uh, and we were at a um, record store doing a signing and uh, the, the, the fans got just crazy. More and more kept coming and we kept getting pushed and, and, and it was getting scary. And we took off down the street running and they were chasing behind us and we ran into a, it was a hardware store. I remember we begged the guy to lock the door and he did, you know, wow. and, uh, you know, things like that. Or we, you know, we, back in those days, there was a period there where you couldn't hear yourself play on stage because mm -hmm. they were screaming, you know? Yeah, and, amazing. uh, I remember looking, oh, you know, Nick Fortuna is my partner. Now he's the other original Buckingham that we're out on the road with, and we've been together forever. But I remember turning to my left in 67, he's the bass player to, uh, to look his direction. And, and these girls were like dragging him across the stage. A bunch of them were, uh, you know, they wound up ripping the sleeve off his coat, you know, and took off with his, his sleeve. I mean, it, it was pretty crazy. There was, you know, there was a, it wasn't for a real, real long time, but there was about a year there where it was, it was pretty crazy, you know, crazy times. You mentioned being on tour so much, and I know that you guys shared the bill with some amazing acts like uh, Gene Pitney and Beach Boys and Sonny Shear, Neil Diamond, uh, the Hollies, Kinks, Yardbirds, The Who. Tell me about any memories about being on a bill with The Who, because that sounds like a, a great, uh, fun time. <laughs> I have some photos of us in a locker room uh, playing, and we were playing at, in Kansas City at a theater with them, and they were relatively unknown. They weren't a super group yet. I think uh, 
my generation was out and uh, they were starting to get a little bit of airplay and uh, pretty crazy guys. And uh, uh, and Nick Fortuna, our bass player, I mentioned Nick, he became pretty good friends with Keith Moon too at the time, you know. And we were the, the, the headliner at the time, you know, because like I said, they were relatively unknown in this country. And we played the show and we didn't realize that uh, the part of their act was uh, smashing all their equipment. And uh, so they did a pretty good job of smashing the microphones. And we almost could, they had to patch stuff together. We almost couldn't go on because uh, nothing was working, you know, when they were done. And, uh, I, you know, I remember we, we, we had an interview the next day at a radio station in Kansas City. We decided to take Keith Moon. So he came with us and they were giving away, it was a contest, they were giving away a sitar. So he wound up taking it and doing something with it and he broke it. <laughs> and they, they had a fit and the program director said, we'll never play a Who record on this station. Well, was he wrong? You know, because uh, soon after that, they were, you know, became a giant group. And, and, you know, we'd run into them on occasion, you know, and uh, uh, Nick always remembers we were staying in New York City. We, we, we were one floor, one floor below the, where, where they were, where the Who were staying. And Keith Moon calls down on the phone, calls down to Nick, and he says, go to the window, look out the window. He says, okay. So he goes over there. Zoom, a TV goes flying out the window <laughs> past his, oh my God. I mean, that's how crazy, the, the TV out the I mean, you, you know, God, can you imagine if somebody was down there and standing on the, on, the, on the sidewalk, he could have killed someone. But that, you know, it was just a crazy time and, you know, crazy stuff going on and, you know. Let me remind folks that Carl G. Marisi is our guest of the Buckinghams, of course, and folks can get information at thebuckinghams.com, and they're playing in our neighborhood on November 17th at the Bergen Pack in Inglewood with Herman's Hermits and the 18th up at Daryl's House in Pauling, New York, uh, and uh, lots of dates. Just check the website for information about that. So sometime right. around around this time, you guys meet this guy, uh, James William Gursio, who becomes your manager. Uh, he is a really interesting guy in the history of rock, clearly a super smart guy. Uh, he was kind of a bass player, songwriter, but he evolved into kind of like a powerhouse, especially in the 70s. But around this time, was there, when you met him, was there evidence that he was kind of this very motivated guy? Well, we knew he was motivated. We didn't know that much about him. I didn't even know he was, he was a great bass player. He really was. You know, he played with a lot of people. And, and he also played bass with the Beach Boys for a while and, and with Chad and Jeremy. Uh, and, you know, what happened was, uh, you know, I don't want to make this a too long a story, but, uh, you know, what happened was, you know, after kind of a drag, it was the number one record, our, our record contract ran out with USA and, uh, can you imagine they didn't have the sense to lock us up and sign us? And I mean, what, what better position could you be than to have the number one record in the country and no record deal, you know? Yeah. So, you know, every, everybody wanted to sign us and, and we had fired our manager, Carl Bonafetti at the time. And we were getting a lot of flack from a lot of Chicago people at the time, because, you know, we realized we we got lucky with kind of a drag, but we, we didn't want to become one hit wonders and we wanted to keep it going. And we realized, uh, you know, we needed to make a change uh, 
if we if we were going to continue, if we were going to make that happen. So we interviewed different managers. I remember going to New York and, uh, you know, interviewing agents. The Willard Alexander Agency tried to sign us. We saw a couple other managers. And, you know, our, our uh, one of our friends and roadies in Chicago says, hey, I got this guy who's a really good uh, doing a lot of great things and he's really talented. His name is James William Gersio. And he was partners with uh, another guy from LA. They, they were living at, Gersio was really from Chicago. He went to DePaul. He knew the guys in the group Chicago. He, you know, he was, but anyway, he, so he had been out in LA and started a management company with uh, Gary Evans. And we were more interested in Evans at the time because Gary Evans' father was a famous agent. Uh, who managed the actor Anthony Quinn, and we thought, well, that's kind of cool, you know. So those those guys came into Chicago and and pretty slick and from from L.A. and we decided to take a chance. And we didn't even know at the time that Gersio had that ability to produce, to be a producer. But he he convinced us that he knew what he was doing and he and he could do it. So we signed with them and. Uh, it all happened so quick and he brought us to Columbia records. So we signed, we wound up signing with Columbia. I remember signing the contract on a plane on the way to New York to record. We were on our way there. We were going to record. Don't you care? So we, we, we went to New York and he got us in the studio and that's when we realized how talented he was. You know, he really knew what he was doing and he really had a, a plan and uh, an idea and, you know, and uh, soon after, uh, he split up his partnership with Evans, and uh, Gary Evans tried to get us to go with him, and I don't know, we just saw the talent in, in Gersio, so he, he became our manager and producer. And, uh, uh, you know, he, he, took our <clears throat> he took our sound, he continued that horn sound. <clears throat> we were known for our pop rock horn sound, and... Uh, uh, he took that to another level, I think. You know, after Kind of a Drag was a great record, but Don't You Care just had it was just a pristine, great sounding record, and so were the others. And so, uh, you know, he went on to produce us, and uh, we stayed with him until things got uh, a little uh, just you know, tenacious and crazy with him. And, and, uh, because we, 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 we started to realize the importance of owning your own publishing and writing. And he was taking that from us and we were, uh, you know, realizing there was a lot of money to be had there. And, uh, so we had a disagreement and eventually, uh, we split up with him, you know, but, uh, but not before he produced, uh, the brunt of our hits, you you say you could have been a one hit wonder, and it's so true. You could have, and you your career really just kept going. I mean, you, I, I don't know. Is there about seven, eight, ten top forty hits? I would guess from the Buckinghams. Yeah, well, we had uh, about seven. Yeah, seven that were top forty charted songs altogether, and and uh, the five were in the top ten. Did USA? Uh, you know, sometimes when a band leaves a label, they're they, they're not too motivated to pay that band. But you guys had a million selling, uh, you know, number one hit. Did USA guys? Did you guys get paid for kind of a drag? Well, we got paid, but uh, I would honestly say we didn't get paid what we should have gotten paid. I mean, we we didn't. Uh, they, they had a lot of creative bookkeeping 
and uh, it was hard to get the money out of them. And, and for being a million seller, we didn't get the kind of money that uh, we should have gotten. You know, gotcha. and and eventually uh, USA sold the whole catalog to, to Columbia. Gotcha. You know, okay, that makes perfect, kind of a trick. Perfect. <clears throat> so let's talk yeah, about the everything. look of the band. I mean, in the 1960s, the way bands looked was so important, and the Buckingham's uh, look kind of evolved uh, over the years. You know. Uh, turtlenecks and civil war outfits and kind of mod suits and stuff. Uh, was that the band's idea? Was that pressure from the outside? How did that happen? Well, it was our idea, but it, we were also going along with the trend, you know, which, uh, the look that, uh, groups were, you know, I mean, in the early days in, in 65, 66, even, uh, a good part of 67, uh, we used to dress alike, you know, on stage and, in uh, matching suits and uh we used to have these suits uh, our manager gercio got the uh the, the um it was at mgm studios there uh the whatever clothing uh, period clothes uh, department they, they actually made these suits for us and they were like edwardian cut and we had about four or five examples of these different suits that we would wear on stage. <clears throat> and that was the look, you know, and, and they were, you know, like tight waist jackets and flared out at the bottom and big collars. And uh, uh, we were ascots for shirts you know, over our shirts. And, and um, you know, it was a look. And that's that's the way you know we'd we'd have a wardrobe where we'd carry this wardrobe and you know, a big wardrobe case with us on the road, and uh, you know some of the suits were pinstriped and they were just different. Uh, the ones we wore on the Ed Sullivan show were uh, suits, but they were Nehru jackets. You know they had the Nehru collar, and uh, they were long coats. You know the coats like went down to our knees, and uh, they were like a tan color, and that, that was our our look for, for that. But then, you know, by the end of 67, um, bands stopped wearing suits look alike, you know, on stage and everybody started dressing different, but, um, I don't know if it was by accident or intentionally, but we always still looked like we belonged in the same band. And, uh, there was a famous clothing store in Chicago called, uh, the man at ease. And uh, they were cutting edge. They'd bring in all the latest fashions from Carnaby Street. And um, so the owner of the store, who we knew when a new shipment would come in, he would call us and we'd go there before the store opened. And uh, we would pick out what we wanted. And uh, so we had quite a array of, of different outfits and, you know, shirts and jackets and and you know, different kinds of pants and shoes and, you know, and so, you know, because we were buying this uh, mostly from, from there and we all, so we, we, we all had, a, <clears throat> we all dressed differently, but yet we looked like we belonged in the same band, you know, <clears throat> and it was, uh, you know, we were all dressed uh, very conscious of how we dressed and, you know, we were really into it at the time. So, you know, we were, uh, I think a good looking band as far as uh, the way we would, you know, we would dress for stage and, you know, back in, it's funny back in those days uh, in 67, I remember, you know, people used to dress up just to get on a plane. I mean, it wasn't like it is today, <laughs> you know, I mean, yes, we would wear suits absolutely. and ties when we traveled, 
you know, if you look at us at all traveling, we, we had suits and ties on and, and maybe the cut of the suit and the tie was a little different than your average person, obviously, but we, we would still dress up, you know, for, for that. Yeah, and, things, have, uh, things have changed. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about this uh, thing I read about there was supposed to be a Buckingham's Day in Chicago. It was canceled when it was learned that some of the band members were arrested for possession of illegal drugs. Now, when you think of the Buckinghams, uh, you don't think of like a psychedelic era band, although if you listen to the last couple of records, it's definitely the music is getting much more uh, psychedelic. There's some, you know, fuzz boxes and things coming in uh, and some kind of the, your guitar playing is definitely getting much more uh, front and center in some of the tracks. But uh, were you guys like real partiers? Well, I can't talk about our drug, you know, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> there, there really wasn't, we weren't a drug band. We weren't into, uh, <clears throat> doing drugs and everything. And we smoked a little pot, you know, as a matter of fact, I didn't even smoke pot. I wasn't even into it, you know, but, uh, uh, you know, some of the guys would, you know, like in 68, uh, would, would smoke a little pot and, and, uh, and, um, and I don't think, uh, the, the way the music changed wasn't influenced by, uh, drugs. Uh, it was just, it was the, the time, the tra- you know, the trend at the time, things were changing and we were trying to change with it, you know, and do things that were different. Cause when we did the, the album portraits, uh, which I think is our masterpiece album, it's, it's, it's a concept album. And, and, uh, I did a lot of guitar playing on that, you know, using different fuzz tones and different sounds. And, and it's, it's a lot of guitar. You know, I was, really happy to be able to you know because the hits were really not guitar songs you know they were the backing was you know bass drums piano uh some organ um, um a little bit of acoustic guitar in the background you know and then you had all the vocals on top of that with the horns or horns and strings you know for the sweetening you know so that album let us expand and do it but it wasn't really influenced by drugs it was influenced by what was going on at the time you know sergeant pepper had just come out and uh it was just a big influence on us but uh you know but you know that that's it's a funny thing we were in okaboji iowa playing and uh uh we got busted for pot you know what happened was a couple of roadies had left uh, a joint in the room when we played played there uh I don't know, six months before or whatever. So the police were uh, waiting for us, and they they uh, actually broke in uh, our hotel rooms and, and uh, arrested some of the guys. I, I didn't get arrest, arrested. Or, uh, a couple of the band members did, but uh, a few of us didn't, you know. And uh, then the whole thing got thrown out of court because they didn't have adequate search warrants and so forth. But, you know, back in those days, in 1968, that was a big deal. You know, now yeah. nobody pays attention to pot and what's going on with <laughs> well, it's with legal now. now. Yeah. It's legal and, and, and everything. But it, it was just a, a little bit of pot. And, and But it, it hit, hit the hit the wires and everybody found out and it made us look really bad. And we were, we had an image at the time, I think of being like a, really good guys and uh, a wholesome band. And then, you know, to have that come out was, was not good for, for us. And, uh, but you know, it, it kind of went away and we went on playing. And uh, I remember our band now about, well, it's been a long time now, about 10 years ago, uh, we were in uh, that part of Iowa, Okaboji, Iowa. And uh, as a joke, I had uh, 
the police, a couple of the police from the police department, Okoboji, <laughs> we took a picture in front of the sign that said Okoboji, Iowa, uh, with handcuffs, you know, <laughs> and the police officers, you know, just as a joke, you know, but, uh, it, you know, it was no, no big thing, but you know, the music scene was changing a lot. And, um, you know, by, by, uh, by the end of 68, I mean, it just seems like it went from AM to FM in, in about two months. Mm. And uh, a lot of the pop bands were uh, kind of being left uh, left out of, you know, it's just groups like us and Gary Puckett and the Turtles and so forth. And uh, even the Beach Boys, you know, it was going to, to a heavier, more concept albums and a heavier sound with cream and Jimi Hendrix. And, and, uh, it, it was just a, a big change in the whole music scene, you know, at that time. You know, I, I, you guys broke up in 1970 and you mentioned, you know, that William Gersio ends up working with Chicago. And to me, like I, I hear, especially in those last albums of yours, a, a sound that would have been very much at home in the seventies. If you had found the right song, you know, that, that kind of right. the horns. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's too bad. You guys didn't sort of, just get to continue it to, to, to work into the seventies. I'm convinced today, if we would have stayed with Gersio, we would have had a few more hits. Yeah, know? I think so. And, uh, and I'm, I'm the only, you know, there was a lot of bitterness in the band uh, toward Gersio. And, uh, I have to honestly say I'm the only person I'm not bitter. I do. I can, I don't condone what he did. He should have uh, been looking out for us more and that business with the publishing and, and no, he was wrong. But you know what? At this point, I mean, it's like I still talk to him. You know, him and I still converse, and uh, um, I look at it like, you know, I've been in the music business and the Buckinghams now since we came back in 1980. Have been going strong ever since, and uh, it's been a great career. And I, I can't be bitter about it. It's I've never had to to work a, a real job in my life. I've always been in the music business. Well, that's a real job, but I mean, you know what I mean? It's a career. It's a career and I've never had to do anything else. So I, I can't be too upset or, or, or bitter about it. But, but Gersio was a talented guy and uh, yeah, we created this horn sound just to go back a little bit. You know, I, I mentioned going back to kind of a drag, this guy, Frank Tuzinski, uh arranged it and he was a trombone player. So the horn sound was really leaned heavy on the trombone and um, like it didn't kind of a drag. And then Gersio continued that sound with our records. And then you mentioned that album portraits. Yeah. A lot of the horns and the arrangements on some of those songs remind me of early Chicago. Yeah. I agree. And, um, and, and, you know, in, in Chicago, they were a band playing in Chicago at a club called the uh called uh Barnaby's uh down on State Street in Chicago and we used to go there to hear we were friends of theirs and we used to go there and hear them uh all the time um after we'd get done with the show we'd we'd come over and hang out and we thought they were fantastic they were called the big thing at the time and we kept telling Gersio you should come in and I think a few other people were pushing him too but we we used to tell him you got to come in and sign these guys these guys are just great and he finally uh, did come in and heard them and signed them to uh, Columbia Records. I took them out to L.A. and, you know, the rest was history. I mean, he, you know, before they left him for pretty much the same reason as we left him, which had to do with publishing and writing. But uh, I don't know how many albums he produced for them uh, before he left. It had to be at least uh, 12, 14 albums, you know. 
and uh, so he had a lot of success with them, and 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 they they were kind of a continuation of our sound, and we even do a couple of Chicago tunes in our live show. You know, we do "Make Me Smile," and does anybody really know what time it is? And uh, tell a little story about our relationship with them and so forth. But uh, yeah. So the band uh, sort of dissolves, like you say, music is changing, and you and Dennis ended up signing to Ode, uh, which is the label Carol King is on, and you do a lot of commercial singing, some jingle singing for a lot of brands folks would know, and you know, you're piecing together your living, and then like you say, in the 80s, things get uh, heating up again, and you're doing, you guys have just done all kinds of tours. I, I'm looking at your itinerary, you know, there's oldies cruises, and there's there just seems like there's always something happening in the oldies uh, moment. Uh, it's nice that you can go out and play to a, a room full of folks that know the words to every song and stuff like that. And like we said at the beginning, I mean, I assume it never gets old. I'm gonna, we're going to play kind of a drag now. I mean, I assume it just never gets old hearing this song. No, it never does. One great thing about your guys is that Sundays has re-released, a, you know, I think the whole catalog is in print with bonus tracks and different mixes and stuff. So folks who are curious, because uh, I think the Buckinghams have such an interesting place because definitely started off as kind of a Beatlesy garage band and then adding the harmonies and then adding the horns. So it's just a, there's a, it makes you guys a unique band. Let's hear a kind of a drag. Carl G. Marisi, thank you so much for visiting with us today. And I want to remind folks they can go to thebuckinghams.com for information. And you guys are playing uh, Saturday the 17th in Inglewood with Herman's Hermits and then 18th up at Daryl's house in Pauling. Thanks for joining us. Let's, uh, you know, such a, such an amazing record. Well, Michael, thank you so much for having me on, and I appreciate it. It's it's always fun to talk and reminisce, and uh, so thanks so much. Kind of a drag when your baby don't love you. Kind of a drag when you know she's been untrue.
Love about